hope you're doing well today. We're in a crazy book. Wouldn't you say this book of Esther? It is just wild. I mean, you've got everything in this book. You've got twists of fate. You've got wealthy men who are far from sober, right? You've got corrupt politicians and kings and empires and you've got impending death of millions on the horizon. I mean, it couldn't hardly get any more dramatic. And so, if you're new, let me quickly, and I mean really quickly this morning, catch you up to speed. There's King Xerxes who has deposed his first wife. He got a second through quite the process named Esther. He's got a right-hand guy whose name is Haman, who's an awful human being that loves attention and fame and glory and power. He wants everybody to bow to him. And a decree is sent out that everyone indeed should bow. And the only person who doesn't obey is a guy named Mordecai, who is a Jew. And so incensed, so livid, so infuriated is Haman that Mordecai doesn't bow, that he plans to murder not only Mordecai, but also scholars estimate up to 15 million other people genocide the entire uh, Jewish race. And so he visits with King Xerxes. He pitches quite the business plan to the king. He says, if you'll permit me to murder all these people, I'll plunder all of their possessions. I'll increase your tax base by 50%. And quite shockingly, the king throws down his John Hancock and death is impending. Slaughter is impending. And the king's wife, Esther, through Mordecai finds out about the evil plan, uh, unbeknownst to the king, she also is Jewish herself. No one knows this except for her first cousin, who happens to be Mordecai. This means she hasn't been obeying God's laws as a Jew, otherwise she'd have been seen doing so. This means she hasn't been celebrating feasts or festivals. It means she's not in church. She means she's not doing these dietary laws. It means she's not praying and meeting with God's people on the, on the regular. In all likelihood, she hasn't been studying the scripture. She is in some ways like, well, who? Well, us. That's who she's like in some ways. She professes a faith that she may not herself actually possess. There's professing, but not necessarily possessing. And meanwhile, Haman is planning to kill Mordecai earlier than the remainder of the Jews. He's steaming over this unwillingness to bow. As of last week, the king's tossing and turning in his sleep. He started doing what all of us do when we can't sleep. He starts scrolling his Facebook wall, looking at images and quotes and and people's stories and, and pictures. And he revisits old pictures and old posts of this Facebook group that he belongs to but seldom visits because he delegates its administration. It's called the Persian Kingdom. 
okay? You know he didn't really have a Facebook page. I'm just trying to put this into a modern context, all right? And because he's delegated the management of this Facebook page and was very busy at the time of its creation and doesn't visit it very often, he somehow missed that about five years earlier, this guy named Mordecai had actually saved his life and, and foiled this small coup, this small uprising against him. And in a remarkable turn of events, King Xerxes asks Haman to throw a parade for Mordecai, the guy who Haman intends to crucify, but that the king is still unaware of. Okay? So, we pick it up where we did last week, uh, Esther chapter 6, verse 14. I'll read that verse, and then we'll get into chapter 7. While they were yet talking with Haman, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. So Esther, in hearing that this death sentence has, had, had been issued, she begins actually practicing her faith in God. She begins growing her faith in God. She's absolutely maturing as a young woman. Um, in the middle of this book, she's becoming increasingly God-like. Um, just remember, it's never too late, by the way, to activate your faith to start becoming more God-like, to start progressing, to stop professing as much and start possessing as much your faith. It's never too late to go all in with Jesus as she so clearly demonstrates. So Esther, she's now ready apparently to use her position as queen, her influence for the kingdom of God. She's actually ready to risk her life. If you'll remember a few weeks back, actually before Christmas, we looked at this text. You weren't even allowed to go in and see the king unless he had summoned you. Even his wife couldn't do that. And she boldly walked in and touched his scepter asking basically if she might speak or talk to him he grants that request but before she go in what does she say to herself if i perish i perish that's what she said she hadn't talked to him in 30 some days that's how great their relationship was as husband and wife in fact a greek historian herodotus tells us that that in his later days, Xerxes was more concerned with managing his harem than he was managing the kingdom. So he's real busy, but not with his wife, Esther. And so the king replies, well, what do you want, Esther? He actually gives her the grace of speaking to him. And she invited he and his trusty deputy, Haman, uh, to a banquet. Have you ever heard the phrase, keep your friends close and your enemies closer? That's exactly what she's doing. And remember, she's yet to reveal that she too will soon be slaughtered. So the plot has been thickening for a couple chapters now. The tension's been rising. Her adoptive father is on the brink of being uh, impaled. Her first cousin Mordecai and her people are on the brink of genocide. This is what we read next, starting in chapter 7. So the king and Haman went in to feast with Queen Esther. You'll notice, uh, by the way, that these feasts really provide a transition in the storyline throughout the book. When people sit down and eat together, they have some, some interesting and life-changing kinds of conversations. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, another thing you'll notice is that they drink a lot in the book of Esther. 
okay? Um, some of you say drinking is not a sin. You're right, drinking is not a sin, but drinking too much is a sin. Uh, the Bible is replete with that thought. Um, we see again and again basically this. And then, and I'm paraphrasing, and then they made a decision after drinking a lot. <laughs> That's what happens in the book of Esther. Um, might I suggest to you that isn't really a winning strategy? Drinking a lot and then making a decision? Um, just out of curiosity, how many of you would say, you know what, I'm, I'm really smart or drunk? Okay, don't raise your hand. <laughs> Um, nobody would say that. That would be a very foolish thing uh, to say. If you think you are smarter drunk, you could still be drunk this morning. So it's just not something that's true. Nobody is smarter drunk. And while King Xerxes and Haman are drinking heavily, the king says to Esther again, What is your wish, Esther? What do you want? Esther, what did you bring her here for? What did you bring us here for? It will be granted to you. Um, even up to half of my kingdom, he said, it shall be fulfilled. So the king keeps asking his wife, you said you wanted something, what is it? What is it you desire? Verse uh, 3, then Queen Esther answered, and notice how incredibly respectful she is to a man who has yet to show himself respectable. This is profound. Um, I am learning, by the way, um, you'd think I'd learned it far sooner than 37, that in a lot of these committees and things that I serve on the district and so forth, that when I am respectful, it allows my voice to be heard in such a way that actually increases the likelihood of the change that I'm trying to affect in what I'm saying. Did you know that? If you come across as a jerk, the likelihood of the change that you're trying to affect isn't as high as if you come across respectable or respectful, I should say. So here she's demonstrating a lot of faith. Um, and this is what she says, the respectful Esther. If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. What she says is, my wish is that I would not be murdered. Me or my people. That's my wish. Now, do you think the king saw this coming? He absolutely didn't see this coming. I mean, this is off the charts. And she's respectful, but she's bold. This is not a silent wish. This is not a timid question. This is uh, demonstrating a ton of courage and faith. And then she continues in verse 4. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, to be annihilated. She's, uh, he, since he's had a few drinks here, um, she's making absolutely certain he's going to get the gist of what she's trying to communicate. She uses three verbs that mean the same thing. Destroyed, killed, annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Now, that's a big statement. In other words, I wouldn't bother you, O king, with something as minor as the enslavement 
of a whole race. I wouldn't bring that trivial matter to you, O king. And while I think we would certainly argue that the enslavement of an entire race of people is, in fact, a big uh, deal, I want to take this opportunity to make this point. There is leadership value in saving only the most important and urgent matters for those who are in leadership over you. That's a great way to serve, to lead. Um, I'll tell you that if you're bringing everything to your leader, she chooses not to do that, including things that are nothing, comparably, you're actually going to lessen your own likelihood of being heard, aren't you? Um, Esther... She's not a person of many requests. And in living this way, when she speaks, she now has the king's attention. She has his ear and she has our attention. Um, and, And here's another important point to make. Not every opportunity is equally important. There are some times when the Holy Spirit places a divine urgency on the part of the believer to act. This happened um, last Monday morning or Monday morning before last. I can't remember. It's all mashing together. I think it was just most recent last Monday morning when the school bus drivers hit the road and they were just sheets of glass. And Stratford Ulrich had four buses turned sideways on the roads, not in the ditch. Marshfield had one in the ditch. Uh, Marathon had one in the ditch, I think. But students couldn't even get across the street to get on the bus from slipping. And I went in and said, hey, I don't know who made this call, but we can't make calls like this. Somebody's got to bring this to somebody's attention. This is not safe. Somebody's going to get hurt or killed. Well, it turned out it, they were being safe, and that's why I'm telling you the story. Um, otherwise, it would be me being disrespectful. But it turns out they were being safe, but this weird weather pattern had happened. And from 6 a.m. when they checked the roads and they were clear to 7 a.m. when the buses hit the routes, Everything had absolutely frozen. And it was terrifying to be a bus driver. Tom said it was the worst day in the history of the company, as he can recall. And and I'm like, it's my second month. Like, give me a break. You know what I'm saying? Um, So there are times when we just sense this divine urgency where we have to say something. We have to do something. And it's important um, to, to, to remember that. What's your point, Pastor? My, my point is this. There will be days when you have to make decisions that affect your entire life. The whole course of your life. The more authority and power you have, it affects everybody who's under your authority. It may affect your parents. It may affect your spouse. It may affect your coworkers. It may affect your children. So keep your eyes open. Don't be a coward. Be courageous like Esther. Be prepared for the moment. It may not involve saving a race of people. It probably will not. But I have no doubt that God gives us providentially appointed opportunities to love, to serve, to make a difference for others, and to effect change. And if we're not all tied up in our own self-interest, maybe we'll be attentive enough to recognize the opportunity and do something. Amen?
Amen. All right. So here she is, magnificent example of courage. Um, What's the king going to do? Verse 5. Then King Ahasuerus, or Xerxes, uh, said to Queen Esther, Who is he and where is he who has dared to do this? The king is angry because an assault on the queen is an assault on who? On the king. It's not because he deeply loves his wife. Okay? That has sometimes been the way the story is told. Um, it's more likely not that he's trying to cherish her, embrace her, protect her in his response, but that he sees her as an extension of himself. That he's seeing someone who's plotting to kill the queen as a plot to undermine the king. Okay, so as much as we'd like to believe otherwise, we already are back to the king's pride and his own self-interest. Verse 6, and Esther said, a foe and enemy, this wicked Haman. And of course, we imagine her pointing her finger at the only other guy in the room. This wicked Haman, bad day to be Haman, wouldn't you say? You thought you were going to dinner with the queen to hear how lofty and wonderful and, and grand you are. And you're posting photos on Instagram to tell everybody about it. And then all of a sudden the king shows up and says, who? Please tell me who's trying to kill the queen. See, Haman didn't know she was Jewish. And neither did Xerxes. Now, this fact alone tells you he didn't know his wife very well, wouldn't you say? I mean, you've been married five years, about the time they've been married, and your wife walks up and says this um, to you. I'm, I'm cooking dinner, honey. And you say, well, that's, that's exciting. What, what are we having? And she says, well, we're having Asian food. And you say, well, why are we having Asian food tonight? And she says, well, because I'm Asian. And you say, What? You're Asian? Well, yeah, I'm Asian. You didn't know that? No, I didn't know you were Asian. When did you become Asian? We can't imagine this kind of conversation. This is exactly what happened. He's not the most attentive husband, right? He never asked, hey, by the way, hon, you know, I've just been thinking about this. Who's your God? Wouldn't that be like a level one kind of First date kind of question. Who's your God? So she's never said who her God is, just like some of us. She wants this privatized relationship with Jesus, not a public relationship with Jesus. She wants all of the benefits from her faith and none of the obligations of her faith. Today, I... today. Esther identifies herself with the people of God. Have you done that? Have you identified yourself boldly with the people of God? Because there's this ridiculous notion, quite frankly, going around, and I know many people, and if you're one of them, I mean this sincerely, who think that it's only about 
a personal relationship with Jesus. Have you ever tried to find that phrase in the Bible? Personal relationship with with Jesus. Um, It's not in there. It's not there. Do we need a relationship with Jesus that is personal? Absolutely. In every way uh, we we do. Um, But that's not all that we need. It's not solely personal. Imagine a kid getting adopted into a family and saying, I want a relationship with dad, but I don't want a relationship with my siblings. I'm just going to be an adoptive kid. I'm not going to be an adoptive brother or, or sister to you. Being adopted by our Father in heaven means we have a family. You know what word is in the Bible a lot? Family. It means we have a church. That word is in the Bible, in the New Testament, all throughout. In fact, there's letters upon letters written to local churches in which believers attend and interact and do life together and support one another and grieve and celebrate together. Some people say, I don't want to be a part of a church. I, I, I don't want to be in a community. I don't want expectations. It's just me and Jesus. It sounds awesome. It sounds spiritual. It sounds great. But hear the truth this morning. You can want that, but the Bible has none of that. The Bible doesn't have room for it. In the Bible is the family of God. It's God's people. An attack on God's people is an attack on us. Esther's demonstrating that. A criticism of God's people is a criticism of me. She could have walked away from the entire crisis. She could have kept her faith personal. She herself has absolutely nothing to gain, by the way, from her boldness. Esther doesn't. But she said, no, it's a great privilege. It's a great honor to be named among God's people. So while you're holding the piece of chalk, throw my name up on the board of of people who are going to be executed. I want to encourage you, likewise, Don't be individualistic and modern and trendy and consumeristic as a Christian. There's a couple points of uh, practical application to pull out of today's text. The first one's this. Divine sovereignty and human responsibility are like two pedals on a bike. They work together. There's kind of like two main theological points on this idea. One is that it's all about God. God's in control. God's sovereign. God's in charge. God works it out. God takes care of it. God's in the details. God's got it all handled and so on and so forth. There's another line of thought that says um, others uh, would espouse, you need to speak. Not God, you need to do this, and you need to serve, and you need to try, and you need to help, and you need to do your part to be a good Christian. And the truth is in the middle. The truth is in the middle. 
you do your part, God is certainly going to do his part. A second point of practical application is this. God gives power to those of influence so that they might serve the powerless. Let me say that again. God gives power to people with influence so that they might serve the powerless. In this situation, God's people are absolutely powerless. This isn't a democracy. This is a monarchy in this text. You don't get a vote. You don't get to go to the ballot box. Um, The people of God have no power. But Esther does. She's the one Jewish person who has access to the king, and she uses it not to indulge herself like Haman does. She uses it to speak up for those who have no voice. Some of you are powerful. Some of you will continue to gain power. Some of you are teachers. Some of you are businessmen and women. Some of you are medical professionals. What I want you to see is that God puts his people in those places of leadership in order to give a voice to the voiceless. Our next question is this. Will Haman die? Verse 6. Then Haman was what? He was terrified. Have you been in a place where your sin and folly caught up with you and you were absolutely terrified? I don't know how to fix this. I don't know how to get out. I can't sleep at night. I'm overwhelmed. I'm panicked. And the king arose, the scripture tells us, in his key word, key word, wrath. In his wrath. A king who is sinned against has the right to respond with wrath. That is his anger. That is his justice. That is a consequence. We've got to be very, very careful that we don't handpick or cherry pick an attribute of God and say that God is that. Is God love? He absolutely is. That's a direct line from the scriptures. But you know what God also is? He is wrath. It's one of his attributes. It's a part of his character. In fact, the wrath of God is spoken of more in the Bible than the love of God. The anger of God is a very real thing. And if I might just camp out here for a moment Our God, the Lord Jesus Christ, is a king and he will execute, he has, I should say, wrath toward his enemies. And you and I, you may not see this coming, we are, until we place our faith in him, his enemies. We absolutely are. We are Haman. (laughs) We are. We're selfish, we're proud, we can't fix ourselves, and we live in an age and even in a Christian culture in which we're told we're basically good people, that God is only love, that there's no wrath associated with him, that he has no enemies. And that's absolutely not true. We'll see soon. It does not end well 
for Haman. And for some of you, the trajectory does not end well. It just doesn't. We will all stand in the presence of a great capital K king. And he's perfect. And he's just. And he has an inordinate amount of love. But he also has an inordinate amount of perfect wrath. And if in your heart and in your life, you have offended the king, you ought to be terrified. We've all heard the objection, I don't believe in hell. One day you will believe in hell. One day everyone will believe in hell. There's no sense of urgency, I might add, because life is going great, isn't it? I mean, life is just wonderful. Why would I choose to believe in hell? Look at my life. Look at Haman's life the day before. He fell victim to the king's wrath. Most, second most powerful man in the Persian kingdom, if not in the world, People bowed to him. He made legal decisions. He actually took human life. He had friends. He had a wife that communicated with him. His life was going very, very, very well. And in a day, it entirely flipped on its head. Chapters 6 and 7 are two of the most surprising, shocking, um, jaw-dropping chapters in all of the scriptures. And for some of you, your transition into eternity will be as shocking as the twists in chapters 6 and in 7. Everything will be fine until you're face to face with King Jesus. I say this out of love for you. I'm not gleefully communicating this this message, and if I love you, think of how much more God loves you and wishes, wants you to turn to him in repentance and trust him as your Lord. Verses 7 and 8, And then the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking, and he went into the palace garden, but Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. He could see it on the king's face. The king didn't even say anything to Haman, and he could sense it and perceive it. The king didn't say a word. The king walked out to collect his thoughts. The king's thinking, what am I going to do? My right-hand hand man just convinced me to kill a bunch of people, and my wife is among them. And you have to wonder, what is Esther thinking when the king walks out of the room? Maybe she's thinking, I'm going to be divorced next like Queen Vashti was. Or maybe the king will come back in and say, wait a minute, you didn't tell me who your God was. You, you tricked me. You fooled me. You also, Esther, will die. She doesn't know what's going to happen. Verse 8, the king returns from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, Will he even assault the queen in my presence, in my own house? Here's what happens. He walks in, 
Queen Esther's on the couch. Haman throws himself at her feet. And the king quickly comes up with a plan to have Haman justifiably executed. He's framed, at least in this sexual assault. The king's rewriting history. Is it right? No, it is not. But it, too, is ironic. Haman lied about God's people so that he could have them all executed. And here the king is lying about Haman in order to kill him. After the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. This is um, what we see on the news as with ISIS or somebody else. When somebody's taken captive, they put a bag over their head. They could no longer see the king's face. Verse 9, then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance of the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high, 75 feet, this is, 75 feet tall, which was quite tall in that day. And, and the king said, hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. And then the king's wrath abated. Here's the big point. In order to abate or subside or turn a king's wrath, there must be a sacrifice. There must be death. It requires that blood be shed. And while Xerxes was a terrible king, Jesus is a perfectly just king. And it still remains that for the wrath of the king to pass, somebody needs to be crucified. Who would that be for us? God's children, it would be Jesus Christ. In this case, it's Haman. And Haman is impaled in his own backyard on his own cross in front of his own family. He is bleeding, weeping, shrieking, dying. And what's worse is that when he closed his eyes for his final breath and then opened them again, he was standing in front of yet a more terrifying, just king. One of my responsibilities in the face of God as your pastor is to prepare you for your day of death. A lot of times we come to church and it's a happy day and somebody gets saved and we celebrate and we rejoice. Today we're reading a text of a man who had an awful, awful funeral. And I just want to ask you this question, are, are you ready to die? Or, like Haman, does the king's wrath still burn against you? Here's where the hope comes in. Jesus is a better king than Xerxes. And about 2,000 years ago, Jesus got off his throne and he came down to earth in human history and he allowed himself 
to be the sacrifice, excuse me, he allowed himself to be the sacrifice that appeased the wrath of his father God. Could you imagine Esther saying, wait a minute, wait a minute, O king, I forgive Haman, please. I, I, I love you, O king. Let me die in Haman's place and be impaled 75 feet in the air instead of him. That is what Jesus did for us. We are Haman. We ought to have died. He loved us. He died in our place and for our sins. I want to read to you um, something from uh, this. Um, well, thought, I thought I was going to read to you. I'm having a hard time finding it for whatever reason on this iPad. But we sang a hymn today and we said, He took my sins and my sorrows and he made them his very own. He bore our sins to Calvary. He suffered and died alone. Oh, how marvelous. Oh, how wonderful. Amen? That's who Jesus is. Would you bow your heads this morning? Father, I just pray that if there's anybody here like Esther who's yet to become active in their faith, who's yet to trust you as Lord, God, that they would begin to take you seriously, that they would place their faith in you, that they would face the king and repent of their sins before they're called out on the table. Lord, we just ask that we would sense your great love toward us and also be absolutely terrified of your wrath, which is equally as real, and that we might respond to your offer for eternal life. For you so loved the world that you sent your only begotten son, Jesus, to die for the sins of us all if we'll only accept forgiveness. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.